Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, anti-Luddites. It may be winter, but it's time to throw open the doors and windows and let our warm, futuristic glow flood your homes for another radiant episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And now here he is bringing all the sunshine and light with him. It's Matthew Dickerson. How are you, Matt? Well, I'm bringing sunshine and light, but I've got a little clarification. I don't want to say error, I just want to say clarification here. An addendum, perhaps? An addendum, yes, I like it. Addendum for last week. I had some listener feedback and I wasn't quite clear enough in one of my stories when we talked about MPGE, so the miles per gallon equivalent of (laughs) an electric vehicle. A new unit for everyone to learn, yeah? (laughs) That's right. Another, why can't we do kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres or something like that? But anyway, (laughs) no, just to give people a bit of a comparison so they can understand how many miles per gallon the MPGA, their, old, yeah. their old petrol car was getting compared to what their EV might get. Now, I did some calculations and I had a bit of a discussion around all of that, but I didn't clarify because I forgot that MPG, miles per gallon, of course, there isn't... Because who universe. cares about gallons? Well, that was kind of what I was thinking, <laughs> but there isn't a universal standard for gallon. Oh, there isn't. We've got the US gallon uh, and we've got the UK gallon. Oh. Uh, for, for complete clarification, to make sure I'm entirely accurate and everything I'm talking about here, I was talking about the US gallon. So does that Can, can you tell me what's the difference between which one's got more? The UK gallon has got more litres, if you want to convert yeah, it back litres, to litres. Yeah, yeah. So the UK gallon has got more litres. So just to give you it, the UK gallon has got 4.55 litres right. per gallon. In the US, it's 3.79 litres per gallon. Fair bit of difference there. Yeah, yeah. So you can understand why some listeners may have been thrown out with their calculations when they were doing their right. miles per gallon. Listeners in the UK, for example, might have been saying, no, I get much better miles per gallon than that. But people in the US, that might have been the right number. So I was using the US miles the per US gallon because I was kind of a, basing it on a US story. So they're obviously using US. Is, is it less because they just like to have more <laughs> in their barrels when they, <laughs> oh, look, we've got so many barrels, like barrels with so many gallons in it. And the British people go, wow, that's a lot of gallons. I'm impressed with your number there. It may be a bit of number <laughs> envy there. They might have had some number have envy for the UK. Is the US billion... 10 million, is that right? Rather, Or is it 100 million rather than 1,000 million? Because the billion is not really an SI unit, is it? It's just something we invented to make things sound impressive. Well, yeah, yeah, million, billion, trillion. Yeah, and, and then like when when metric people talk billions, they, they're talking thousands yeah. of millions. And that but makes I sense. But I think the US, we, when they're talking money, they talk 100 million. Well, that would make sense because you can be a billionaire easier. easier than you don't have to get yeah. to that extra factor of well 10. Well done, you guys. But I assume we talk about it. In metric countries, we talk about the jump being a thousand because we're used to our SI units being Mm. jump of a thousand, so kilo, mega, giga, or all those jump of another thousand. So we're kind of used to those three zeros, but in America, but haven't the Americans one more thing in America that doesn't make sense? (laughs) That's right. Haven't they caught up yet about the (laughs) triple zero for things? And haven't they haven't they caught up with metric yet? Aren't they? Haven't they gone that way? Actually, I do find it funny when you're in America and you see signs for the distance to the next turn off, whatever it might be, Mm. and it says in Australia we might expect to see 5.2 kilometres or just 5 kilometres, and you still see in America 
15 and three-quarter miles. Mm. So they have fractions. Oh, they have the fractions, fractions on a sign. Yeah, 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 they don't yeah, have 15.75, yeah. they have 15 uh, and three-quarter miles to the next <laughs> turn-off or whatever it might be. So that's always interesting when they do that. I can't remember with SatNav, it's been a little while since I've been to America, I can't remember the SatNav says 15 and three-quarter miles or it says 15.75 miles, but surely it would say the decimal version of miles. Maybe? Maybe. Mm. You'd hope. Don't know. So anyway, much. so that's clarification now. Thank you for that listener feedback. It is important. I do like to make sure that we get things absolutely accurate, and that was one thing that was my mistake that I didn't clarify that. Sure, and just interesting to note that one gallon does not equal another gallon. <laughs> no, no, that's right. Okay, enough of this chit-chat. It's time for the to give the people the gifts that we've come uh, that we've we're going to give today, I should say. Hands up, who loves a call from a telemarketer? Maybe not. Serial time wasters, the lot of them. Well, who loves a good story about giving it back to telemarketers? Almost everyone has one or two clever ideas for how to get one back on a telemarketer. But does your clever little strategy involve a chatbot ally? Matt, how can I enlist a bit of AI to help me out next time I get an annoying phone call? Well, this story reminds me, the first part of it reminds me of a trick we used to do with my kids. I remember we used to try and set up our voicemail on our mobile phones to trick people into thinking oh, yeah, yeah, you'd yeah. answer the phone. So you'd say, hello, yeah, hello. and you'd pause, <laughs> can't quite hear you. And it was hilarious <laughs> when you'd do it to try and trick, and we'd do it with the kids, and we'd always try and get a message that would trick someone else. And that's almost what this guy did for some of the calls that were coming in. He would use an answering machine. And this is many years ago. Start off using an answering machine, answer the call, have a bit of a pause, say a few random things that were designed to, to basically trick the automatic dialer to switch over to a human. Now, that's the first thing that you've got to remember about some of these scam calls. Mm. They're not a human sitting there making all these calls, wearing out their index finger, punching buttons on a phone. Mm. It's an automated dialing process. Some of these dialers can dial 100 calls a second. So they're just going out there, a numbers game. And then finally when they get someone they think is real, i.e. an answering machine that says, hello, a bit of a pause, sorry, I can't quite hear you, whatever it might say, they switch it through to a real life person. Hey, we've got a live one here. And then that person goes, oh, damn. And they wasted 30 seconds of their time. So yeah. that's a, a small victory. But this particular gentleman who was doing that for a while has now enlisted some AI. You can actually subscribe to this service for 25 bucks a year. I'd pay that easily to just <laughs> annoy some of these scammers. And then what it does is it goes through and has a conversation. But what it starts off with is a few little random bits. Sorry, can't quite hear you. I'll just go and move into the kitchen. I'm in the lounge room and it's a bit noisy. Whatever, just random statements. So the person thinks, oh, okay, I'll wait. I'll wait on the phone. And then the person starts going through a bit of their spiel. Meanwhile, very quickly, the AI chatbot's trying to learn a bit about oh. this call. And then it starts to get into its rhythm. And then it makes these mistakes. So, for example, it'll say, now I'm just after your credit card. Oh, my credit card. Oh, I can never find where my credit card is. Oh, it's around here somewhere. Hold on a second. I'll just go and look for it. <laughs> so as many tricks as you can think of, yeah. this goes through the process and tries to, to do this. And then, obviously, the idea is just to waste some time. Now, where he's gotten up to so far, his record is six minutes and 27 seconds before finally the scammer said, this isn't real. I'm just being taken for a ride here, damn it, you. <laughs> Most of the time they're getting around three to four minutes. Now, it doesn't sound like a huge victory, but that's three or four minutes 
that particular scammer isn't talking to someone else, someone yeah. that might be vulnerable, someone that might be able to be tricked into giving over their credit card details or driver's license or whatever. Mm. So I chalk it up as one small little victory for the anti-scammers. And unfortunately, scammers are making money. We know that that's the case. We talk about it regularly that they're obviously making money, otherwise they wouldn't keep doing it. But what this particular gentleman likes is it's not about blocking the scam calls because those automated dollars, if it gets blocked, it just goes to the next one. Mm. It's not really costing them any time or money. But if you're going to waste someone's time, that person's trying to get through a certain number of calls and try and scam some people. So it's a good little victory. I like it. In the fight against cancer, early detection is the most powerful strategy, increasing the success of treatment significantly. Until recently, detection required in most cases exploration only once symptoms had already set in, or in specific scanning like mammograms, pap smears and colonoscopies, for example. But what if you could just get a periodic AI once over to pick up diseases like cancer before you were even aware of any symptoms at all? Well, that would be a revolution, wouldn't it? Matt, this may be closer than we'd think. Actually, on the pap smear, I only learnt the other day where pap came from. I assumed it was an acronym that stood for something complicated and really deep and meaningful, but it's just a shortening of the surname of the husband and wife team. Oh, really? came up with the pap smear. In fact, the wife was the guinea pig, having tests done every day for 20 years to see the changes that occurred. Her husband, the medico, was going through and and doing this experimentation. So it comes from their surname, which is a long, complicated name, but it's been shortened to pap. pap There you go. Totally off the topic, but I I found that fascinating. There you go, folks. Um, Who says we don't give these gifts for free? That's right, exactly right. We'll we'll add that as an extra one there. So the idea of scanning your entire body, not going through an airport, but scanning your entire body for something sounds really attractive. It sounds like something out of sci-fi. It sounds like you'd want to do it because you don't want to wait until one day something happens, you have an ailment or you suddenly start to trip down some stairs because you've got some tumour in your brain or whatever might happen and then, oh no, it's too late. If only you'd come along, James, six months ago, we could have picked up this. It's not too expensive, I thought. There's different companies doing this, $1,300 to $2,500. Now, that does sound expensive, but if that picked up something early, if you did this every couple of years and it picked up something early mm. and it gave you an extra 20 years in your life, well, I think that would be a pretty good outcome. Now, there are some doctors that aren't overly impressed. They believe that looking at a full-over body scan and picking up some small abnormality, which may be nothing, but you then go and have further testing done on that and then you might even go as far as having a little bit of exploratory surgery done to see exactly what it is to find out it's nothing – The medicos say, we'll pick up these things as long as you just come and see us regularly. There might be a bit of self-interest there, but I hope not. I hope they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. So don't go and do the full over body scan. Just come and check it. And then if we think there's something wrong with one part of your body, we'll send you in for a scan of that part of the body rather than the full over body scan. Well, I reckon this is just the start. This is where, you know, like, we're sort of, it's new technology. We're just sort of easing into it. I reckon this will become commonplace before we know it. Well, you can just imagine in some sci-fi movie, none come to mind about one that would do this, but you can just imagine you just go in for your scan every month and they check your whole body and, yep, yep, you're clear. On you go, oh, hold on, we found a little thing here. We'll just nip that in the bud before it goes any further and job done. So preventative medicine, surely that sounds pretty attractive. So I'm with you. 
I love the idea. Not available in Australia yet, but I'd do it. I'd actually, I'd pay the money and go and do it if for no other reason. Well, I can just, imagine the cost will come down as well, surely. Well, as you're doing it more regularly, that's right. Maybe they could combine it with airport scanners. So you can go through and get your yeah. body scan for weapons and also a quick body scan for any ailments that you might have there. Yeah, so the, <laughs> the person airport security, I thought about going to see a doctor that's recently. Right. Yeah, maybe that's a good idea. So I do like it, but again, I, I suppose I'd like to see some more outcomes from it to see exactly the things they're picking up and how mm. good it is at picking it up. I suppose the other thing you've got to be careful of is not getting a false sense of security. Oh, I'm in perfect condition because I had my scan six months ago mm. and there was nothing there. Some cancers can go pretty quickly as well. Mm. One of the problems with the fancy cars that we drive today is that they are a bit too fancy. And when repairs are needed... They are usually some very fancy parts required uh, that are involved that come at quite a cost. A 1973 VW Beetle may make a fair bit of noise and have a top speed closer to a Massey Ferguson tractor than a Ford Mustang, but the old VW engine was a Meccano set and could have been repaired by a switched-on 14-year-old at a pinch for the price of a new football. Matt, the days of tie wire and duct tape fix-ups, they're a long-distance memory. I got caught out with a windscreen not that long ago. There used to be the concept, and I think it's still there now, where many insurance companies say, would you like an excess-free windscreen cover added to your car insurance? And mm. it's a minimal amount extra. And I used to always say, no, 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 I used to have a mate. He worked for a windscreen repair place. I just take it to him and he can just drop a new windscreen in. A couple hundred bucks, that's all okay. And so I did have a crack on windscreen and I took it to my mate and it was $4,000 wow. to get a windscreen replaced. And you think, why? What happened to windscreens? It's a piece of glass, but of course... Not only is it a part of the structural integrity of the car now, mm. which scares you a little bit when you think if you roll the car, you're relying on that windscreen to keep the top of the body where your head's sitting in <laughs> yeah. place, but the amount of technology and the equipment built into the windscreen now is quite incredible. We've gotten too fancy. We have gotten too fancy. You you may think, and, and maybe there is a case for that, but... The amount of things in there to help self-driving aids, for example, a whole mm. range of technology, but it's not just the cost of the windscreen replacement and all that technology built in, it's the recalibration. Now, Tesla's clever yeah. enough that it does an automatic recalibration if you have a windscreen replacement, but my father-in-law broke a windscreen and he took it long to get it replaced, and then after they replaced it, they had to put it in a on the back of a truck, send it 400 kilometres away, because the closest place it could do the recalibration in that particular vehicle was 400 kilometres away. Oh, so really? it went off on the back of a truck, got <laughs> recalibrated. The recalibration probably took two minutes, then put it on the back of a truck, brought it back. There you go, sir. There's your windscreen replacement. I'm sure that one cost thousands of dollars yeah. as well. So we do seem to get very expensive vehicle repairs now. And you might think, well, that's terrible. It's making everything dearer, insurance dearer, making our repairs dearer. But then you start to look at the advantages of that. And just to give you an idea, the average cost of repairing a damaged vehicle has gone up by 36% since 2018. So it's five years, yeah. so it's not ridiculous, but it's still a well, fair bit. I've got a, like a situation that happened over Christmas where we busted um, just the front bit of plastic off our headlight. Right. Uh, kangaroo decided to hit us. We didn't actually hit the <laughs> kangaroo, but it just cracked the, the plastic on the front of the, um, the headlight. And um, rather than just replacing that bit of headlight, that little bit of plastic... 
had to replace the whole light. Yeah. And, and that came with all the other bits and bobs that are required. And uh, that's the thing, isn't it? They seem to now have to replace a whole bunch of stuff rather bingo. than just that one little bit. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah anyway, so 36% is 36%, the average. Yep. And then car insurance premiums have gone up by 17% over the last year. So that's quite dramatic when you consider some of those prices. And there's probably a bit of a lag, the repair costs going up and then the actual cost of the insurance premium going up. But when you start to break it down, what should happen, hopefully, is that we should be having fewer accidents. So even though it's more expensive, we've got sensors everywhere, you just run into the back of someone in the old days, there was a bit of a ding mm. on your bumper, you might have just got it bent out and everything was okay. Mm. Now you might damage your radar control, cruise control, you might damage parking sensors, yeah. but you're much less likely to actually have that little bingle in the first place because you've got all these sensors in place. And I've seen it. A few times where I've been driving along and there's a car slowing down in front of me and next thing you know there's alarms going off and the car's automatically braking for me. It's all very early in that warning system. So if I was distracted at that time looking away, checking my mobile phone, whatever, then it would be telling me that there's something coming up I need to be braking for. So those sort yeah. of things should avoid that just rear end and that's a fairly common accident in a city where you've got lots of traffic, stop, go, stop, go and run into each other. So that's certainly something that's interesting. There is some discussion around EVs. There are some EV haters out there. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, James. But, <laughs> but there are some discussions around EVs being much more expensive than an ISEV. And in terms of that, there is a little bit of that, a little bit of truth in that. But that's mainly because EVs are more expensive at this stage. If you compared other vehicles in the same category, if you like normal petrol vehicles that are in the same price category as EVs, then the repair cost of an EV is actually not much different. Okay. It's only if you compare the average across all petrol cars, which includes ones that are fifteen or twenty thousand yeah. dollars, and all EVs, which are typically in Australian dollars, fifty thousand dollars and above, then you do get that bit of a discrepancy. So it's you want to break down the numbers, an EV Average repair cost was $6,800, and that's $2,400 more than the average for all cars. But again, it's an unfair comparison, so I'm sticking mm. out for EVs here just to mm. make sure we're not uh, giving them an unfair time. The other one that's interesting is when you look at accidents and they can't repair them. They say, that's a write-off. And I'm often amazed at the people who tell me they had an accident, had a bit of damage to a few body panels, and the car was written off. Yeah. You think, surely that looks repairable. <laughs> but I think the insurance company says, well, the cost of repair of that, it's cheaper just to write it off and you go and replace the car. The write-offs in terms of EVs, only 6% of all accidents that involve an EV are written off. 18% of petrol or ICE cars are written off. Now, right. again, that may be because of the higher expense. So it's worth more money for an EV. Therefore, there's more value in repairing it you have an accident in a $15,000 petrol car, then it's probably not worth repairing it. You might basically throw it away and start again. So it's probably not the end of the world from that perspective. Those those stats maybe are a little bit twisted, if you like. So cars are getting more expensive. There's more complications in there. But I think that's not a bad thing because mm. we actually use that technology to save lives. And that's got to be a good thing overall. Absolutely. against OpenAI and its prize pony ChatGBT is gathering steam. The software company is facing legal action now from two authors who claim that AI software was trained using their work without their consent. Matt, I presume that these two authors are probably not the only ones. Do you reckon they have a case? I reckon they've got a case definitely because where does ChatGPT learn, learn its trade? 
That's right. It's got to learn its trade from other stuff that's out there. Mm. So it scours the internet. It looks at all this language and learns all these natural language items and says, I know how to write a Mills and Boone novel because I've read a thousand of them or how many <laughs> Mills and Boone novels there are out there, which I imagine is a lot. So obviously it's got to learn its work from somewhere. Can they identify their work in something that ChatGPT produces? Gee, I reckon some authors could probably see mm. some language that looks like theirs, but at the same time, there's probably other books they could see that's got language because there's only so many ways you can arrange words and phrases and certain things there. But this will be a really interesting legal challenge. So it's not just, hey, I think it's happening and we go, yeah, it probably is. But they're saying, if you want to use our IP, if you want to use works that we've done, then sure, do it, but pay me some compensation. The same as if you've written a bit of music and I want to use that in a song that I'm writing, I'll pay you some royalties, I'll pay you some compensation and everyone goes away happy. At the moment, the authors aren't going away happy. So they're waiting for someone to say... Yeah, this is Pandora's box, isn't it? Oh. I reckon that um, you know, if they win, just the number of cases where people will say, well, I reckon you've borrowed my stuff too. Well, Getty Images, interesting enough from a, an image perspective, they sued Stable Diffusion, which is an art generator, because they said... You used our 12 million images, Getty Images, 12 mm. million images there, to learn how to create artworks. And then when someone creates an artwork with Stable Diffusion, you had to have gotten that information mm. from somewhere, and we reckon you got it from us. So there's a, a process going on as well there. So I think there'll be a few legal challenges. OpenAI, do they really want to have a successful legal case against them? Probably not. Same with any of these, whether it be generating art or generating text. No one wants to have someone win the first case because, as you say, that is Pandora's box then. It will go crazy after that. So there's going to be a few solicitors rubbing their hands together out there waiting for these representations for these legal cases. And we've talked before about AI being used in legal cases, they probably won't be using AI in these legal cases. I think (laughs) they'll probably be using their own work for that. With only 3% of the world's water being freshwater, and then only 1.3% of that tiny amount being drinkable, futurists have suggested that access to freshwater might be the biggest issue of the next 100 years. If history teaches us anything, though, one thing humans do quite well is finding creative solutions to difficult problems. Some have looked to the oceans and invested in desalination, tapping into the abundant supply. But that is, of course, extremely energy expensive. And so a group of engineers from MIT have set to work and developed a new way to efficiently draw fresh, drinkable water from air. Matt, I assume this goes beyond a simple junior high school science condensation practice for sure. Really? Yeah, it's not like you see in the uh, little shows where they say, this is how you survive in the desert, dig a little hole and put a bit of plastic over the top. Yeah. This is using a hydrogel that absorbs water from the atmosphere. Now, you might think that's fine if you lived in Darwin where you've got very humid conditions, well, mm. that makes sense. But this works in arid climates. This works in areas that have got as low as 30% humidity. Now, when you talk about the desert, you might think there's 0% humidity, but there's still moisture in the air in a desert environment. There's still some out there in the air. And it sounds like a miracle, doesn't it? Mm. Here we go. Let's set up this little instrument. We've got this gel, and it'll just absorb some water from the atmosphere, and we can go on and, and drink it. Now, do you, do you know what I thought as soon as I was reading the notes about this was um, with the amount of air traffic that we've got, they suck an enormous amount of water out of the air, uh, making their vapor trails. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so um, after 9-11, we found that the pan rates, the evaporation rates, and there is a, um, a special unit, I've got to do my research for that, but um, pan rates, evaporation rates um, that occurred after 9-11 because they shut down all air traffic, they changed significantly. For a be- short period of time. For a short period of time because yeah. there was not the air traffic. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So they're sitting at 36,000, 38,000 feet above the earth. Yeah. I'm surprised that it still had an impact down at ground level. Absolutely, yeah. Given the fact that they're so far above the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, well, again, and with diffusion occurring, if you're if you're condensing that water into a, a smaller area, that water is still going to want to diffuse mm. evenly throughout the air. So yeah. that space that they've stolen the water from needs to be filled. Yep. Um, very interesting. Interesting. So they didn't talk about that in this particular story, but they did talk about just getting water from the air. Now it comes down to that magic answer. It's all about surface area. So you still need a reasonable amount of surface area, but they were getting 1.79 grams of water absorption per gram material. Now it could take different amounts of time depending on how much humidity there was in the air, but you can just imagine, and this is a passive collector. There's not something there that's actively working, but you do need some power because you need to take the water from the gel and get mm. it out and, and put it into some sort of container. But some solar cells, let's face it, where you're trying to produce this water, you've probably got a bit of sun around. You're not running in a, a nice stream beside you in a heavily clouded atmosphere. You're probably doing this out in a, an arid climate in a desert type area. So basically the unit that they'll create from this is all going to be passive. It's going to sit there, take water from the atmosphere and generate really clean drinking water because it's taking it from the atmosphere. So you're not getting any contaminants in there. Now, the idea here, obviously, is you've got places. It's not for you and I to go camping out in the desert and say, it'll be right, we don't need to take water. We've got (laughs) our little water creator machine here. It's really about taking that water from places that haven't got easy access to water, some third world countries, some countries that just don't have that. Your stats there at the beginning, absolutely right. You don't have everywhere that's got easy access Mm. to drinking water creating some machines like this to create water, but you still need a fairly large surface area. So you still need an area that can absorb a fair amount of water. So we're not talking about going to a major population city of a couple of million people and just say, we'll stick one of those on the edge and that'll produce all the water for the city. But in small villages, this absolutely sounds like a much better way to produce water. Well, that's currently. But as I alluded to, um, the race for fresh water is going to become more and more urgent um, Mm. as the the clock ticks. Um, Yeah, and and more and more requirement for fresh water, but not only fresh water, drinkable fresh water. Correct. Power and water, you know, they're going to be the big things of the future, aren't they? Absolutely. Getting some clean power, getting some clean water. But hydrogel, keep an eye out for it. There'll be more things we'll see with hydrogel. And I'm sure there will be some camping units as well that you can take out camping, get some water out of the atmosphere. But I see the real use of this is in environments where people don't have that access to clean drinking water. Mm. This next story is going to sound like it belongs on a late night TV infomercial. But here goes anyway. This new piece of tech that my friend Matt is going to tell you about is going to make all your mops and brooms redundant. Get this, folks. It vacuums and mops all in one single pass. Matt, is this where I throw last night's leftovers on the floor and uh, you do a quick demo? (laughs) Why not? Why not? That does sound like a late-night TV show. But one of the problems we've got with our robot vacuum cleaners is that they're a robot vacuum cleaner. So on Mm. a timber floor, it doesn't do a great job. We've also got robotic mops, and if you put them onto a hard surface floor, tile or timber, then it does its job mopping, but 
there's all the dust and things that it picks up. So that water gets dirty pretty quickly. Mm. We need something that can actually just get rid of the dust and that light dirt first and then do its job with mopping. And that's exactly what we've got there. This is the Floor One S7 Pro. You know it's good because it's got the word Pro in it. It's almost <laughs> like putting eye or um, Bluetooth or any of the other things there that seem to catch people's attention. But the Smart Vacuum does exactly that. It vacuums. It's got a, a vacuum head at the front. It vacuums across the area that you're cleaning. And then behind the vacuum, it's got a mop. So it actually mops the floor directly behind after the vacuum is finished. There you go. Where were these when I was a kid and months ago? <laughs> and mop that concrete floor, son. This would have been fantastic. It's got self-cleaning system, of course. So it cleans it as it goes. It cleans its own self. Obviously, the water gets to the stage where it's too dirty. You've got to empty the water out. It doesn't do that automatically. It's got a 3.6-inch LCD display, voice assistant. It's got everything you'd expect. Of course, it's got Bluetooth on there as well. I don't know if it has, but it should have with everything else it's got there. Uh, and and it, again, it actually adjusts the power and water volume based on how much dirt it's picking up. So it's detecting that dirt. Sounds pretty cool. The only thing it doesn't do is it does. it's not a robotic one. You've got to actually drive this yourself. You've got to have a human at the end of it. Oh, what? That, I know. That's the only thing I thought a bit disappointing about. Surely, all of this... In this day and age, yeah, you want you've still got robotic. humans attached. <laughs> Apparently, yes. But it does make <laughs> the job a bit easier for humans being attached to it. But surely it's not too long before it then says, you know what? That'll do you humans. We've now got a robotic version of this. Have we got to buy one, get one free deal going right now? Or? <laughs> no, nothing like that, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Starlink has become a bit of a feature out here, out west of the mountains, bring people remote, in, I'll start again, in remote locations, the same sort of internet connectivity that they would otherwise get in the city. There are still some folks a bit slow to catch on, as you might guess, but that may change now that Telstra has teamed up with Starlink. Matt, things are levelling out between the haves and have-nots out west now. It's actually really interesting, and let me go back a little bit. When Stephen Conroy was the Minister for Communications, made the announcement about the NBN, and all very exciting, talked about fibre, they weren't talking Mm. about fibre to the node at that stage, it was all fibre to the premises, every place was going to get fibre connected, except remote areas because it was a bit hard to get fibre to every home. And I actually ended up asking for a meeting with Stephen Conroy and I sat in his office with two of his very young, very knowledgeable, in inverted commas, advisors. And I said, this is wonderful, Stephen, fantastic, well done, but you've still got geostationary satellites for people in remote areas. 36,000 kilometres above the earth, you get latency and that means the experience for people. All these wonderful things you talk about with the NBN, mm. the experience for those people is not going to be all the things that you promise. And the two young advisors said, don't worry, Minister, we've got that problem solved. We're going to have faster satellites. And I tried to explain <laughs> that it had been a long time since anyone had proposed that we could go faster than the speed of light and electromagnetic waves, of oh, course. Let's go with that, folks. Yeah. That's right. So, And look, if you want to get technical, you go back to the very beginning of the Big Bang and this discussion about Things being just a little bit faster than the speed mm-hmm. of light, but yeah. really, electromagnetic no. waves, 3 by 10 to the 8, is about the maximum, so you've got this problem with distance. But they, they didn't want to hear a bar of it, they knew all about it, they were <laughs> going to make faster satellites, and the minister was advin- convinced that this was all going to be okay by his young advisors. Of course, go forward a few years, we've got Sky Muster, and if that's all you can get, if you're on a location, you can't get mobile service, you can't get fixed wireless, you can't get any of the other mm. NBN connections... Then you'll go Skymaster and you'll go, well, I guess I've got to put up with that. 
and about 112,000 people had SkyMaster by the end of 2021. So it was a solution for you know, a significant chunk of people, mm. but none of those are that excited about it. Yeah. Along comes Starlink, and of course they use low Earth orbit satellites, so not 36,000 kilometres, but 550 kilometres or thereabouts. Now, of course, that presents a problem. Geostationary, you put a satellite up above your spot in Australia, and you've got it there all the time. It stays in sync with the That's rotation of the Earth. You just need to aim your satellite dish in the one spot in the sky yeah. and leave it there. Happy days. Low Earth orbit, they're spinning around the Earth about once every 90 minutes. Yeah, so your satellite dish has got to chase it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so the way you solve that problem is by having lots of satellites there. And they've talked about Starlink having thousands already, maybe 4,000 already up there, and having maybe 10, 20,000 eventually. So that's great for Starlink. Now, Telstra, interestingly enough, said from the very beginning, we're going to have connections through MBN, but we refuse to connect with SkyMuster because it's not good enough. So when ah. people connect with SkyMuster, they couldn't connect with Telstra. So if they had their mobiles with Telstra, their landlines with Telstra, people love the idea of one bill, yeah. but SkyMuster, Telstra said, sorry, we're not going to do it. And so that was a bit Was that because Telstra didn't want the complaints f- f- coming into that, them? That's exactly right. They they looked at it and they said, this is not the NBN that people have been promised. Yeah. So it's not worth it for us. For mm. the few dollars we might make out of it, people will be unhappy. But Starlink, they said, hold on a sec, here is a legitimate solution for these people. And they're the first telco in the world that have been able to do a deal with Starlink. There you go. Now, Starlink, of course, has got Elon Musk there. I get the impression, and don't take this the wrong way, Elon, because I know you listen to our tech talk every week, but (laughs) don't take this the wrong way. I just detect a touch of arrogance from Elon. And I detect that he would be the sort of person who would say, I don't need to do a deal with a telco, because guess what? We're Starlink, and we're going to get your connections anyway. So I was a little Mm. bit surprised, and I I congratulate Telstra on the wheeling and dealing they must have done, because I was a bit surprised that Starlink said, yes, we're going to do a deal with Telstra. So what this means now is, You'll still have Starlink. You'll still have the ability to connect. You'll have the lower latency. You'll have the connection out there in the middle of nowhere. But most importantly for people, they'll be able to have the one bill. So they tell us to bill their mobiles on or their landlines, whatever other services they have, and it will have their satellite connection, their Starlight satellite connection. Now, I have no idea of pricing. I have no idea of how it might differ to normal Starlink. I imagine it will be pretty much the same, but Telstra haven't announced all those details yet. What they have announced is, we've done a deal with Starlink, customers... Get excited out there, and I think they will. When you start to look at the connections that Starlink has already been doing, you're getting tens of thousands of connections. Hundred, I think they've got over 120,000 connections now in Australia of Starlink. So some of those people that are on SkyMaster have started to drop off. They've dropped mm. down already to 100,000, so they've lost about 12,000 connections from SkyMaster already. So you're getting that number going down. I know a couple of down. people who have picked up Starlink, and they love it. Yeah. Now, the big challenge is when you get five people on Starlink, happy days. Mm. When you get 500,000 on Starlink, is it going to perform as well? Logic mm. says no, but is it going to perform well enough? Well, I think they're trying to make it to the point where it effectively will. So it's interesting. Again, I can't tell you more details yet. We will talk about them as they become more, or basically when Telstra announce all those details. But it's a really exciting move, and I think a really good move. And maybe it'll push NBN into doing some of the deal, or maybe going forward with some other plan to get some low-Earth orbit satellites rather mm. than geostationary. As AI tools are being implemented in more and more industries around the world, there's a growing level of trust in the job it does. However, 
A new local law in New York will seek to audit uh, employers who use AI in shortlisting and hiring applicants to ensure that AI itself has no discernible bias. But I assume that there's been some suspicion already, otherwise they wouldn't have uh, created a law like this. There has been some discussion already that people using AI just to read CVs, Mm. there's certain types of people that they come through and get some sort of preferential treatment. Now, you can imagine, if you set up a test and you went into humans looking at CVs, interviewing for a job, and those humans said, sorry, we don't like the colour of your skin, we don't like the age of you, we don't like your ethnicity, any of those things, if they came out and said that, that's exactly right. And you can be fined for discrimination in those processes. Now, if it's all happening behind the scenes with Magic AI, Mm. and then it picks candidates, and those same employers said, we're going to pick this person, it just happens to be the ethnicity, age, and gender of the person that we would have picked ourselves, Mm. but we didn't pick them, well, at this stage, they're kind of protected because they didn't pick them. Yeah, they're AI shifting the them. blame and it's not our fault. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. What are we to do? AI picked that person for us. So now there's a New York local law that's basically taken effect already just and they're going to do some random checks. They're going to submit a bunch of CVs to an employer who's using AI. And let's see which of these people you choose. Mm-hmm. Now, they'll obviously... I imagine, I haven't seen the details of these CVs, but I imagine they'll put details in these CVs that are very specific about someone being good for that job whilst having the wrong ethnicity or age mm-hmm. or, or gender. Something about their background. Yep, that's yep. right. And so then they'll see if they've picked the people that are the best qualified for the job because that's what you'd hope that AI would do. Mm. But AI up to this point in time has shown biases that pretty much match human biases. Really? Yeah. And guess what? That's because it's learning its stuff from humans. So (laughs) it kind of makes sense. But this is really interesting. Now that means, all of this means that people who are programming, who are telling AI what to do, have got to be very specific about telling it to do things in a very neutral, unbiased way. And you'd think that'd be a good thing. Mm. You would hate to think that someone missed a job that would be absolutely perfect this job and have got some great credentials and great experience because of something simple like their gender or age or whatever it might be. Mm. So it's going to be really interesting. I love the idea of it. And it should, it should drive better employment outcomes. Because even though you might think you're unbiased, I think everyone's got some little biases that sneak in to their day-to-day thinking. Yeah. Just some little things they can't help. As much as they try not to, they can't help. So if AI can do it absolutely clean, I think that's a great outcome for everyone. But... I don't think we're there yet. Still remains to be seen. Still remains to be seen. Electric air taxis are a step closer to becoming a commonality. In the US, Joby Aviation have unveiled their first prototype air taxi with six propellers, and the military are very interested. That's the US military. Matt, it's still experimental, but we're getting close now. Well, the FAA has given it approval to fly, and it's marked as experimental, which I'm sure has a bunch of conditions that are very specific about being marked as experimental. But most importantly, Joby is now delivering one of these aircraft to the Edwards Air Force Base for testing from the Air Force after they've done their own in-house trials. So they're convinced it's working well. They've got an FAA approval. 
But if you want to really see if something's going to work well, take it to an Air Force base and say, mm. here you go, boys, have some fun <laughs> with this one, and see here you go. The, the, the nicks and bumps in this one. That's right. Now, Delta Airlines, they've got a collaboration going with Delta Airlines where they want to use them for some short hops, mainly in the first instance among the various airports around New York City. Because I think from memory there's about five different airports in New York City. It's always confusing mm. when you're flying to New York going, where am I going again? Which airport am I going to? I'm sure Americans do it much better than I do, but I don't go there that often. So <laughs> you're always thinking, now, is this going to end me on the wrong side of the city or where am I going to end up? But this is exactly what Delta wants to do. They want to have more flexibility with which airport they use. So if they have a little air taxi that you end up at one airport, all right, your next flight's just over the other one. It's five minutes away via a Joby vertical takeoff and landing device. Let's just put you on that and away you go. Of course, we've seen some places around the world have got these as taxis. And again, I think the logical place to use these would be from the airport into the city. Airports always seem to be a bit out of the city. Obviously, you need a runway to Mm -hmm. land on. And trying to get in, it's always a congested path to get from the airport into the city. So putting these up in the air, 20 metres above the air, whatever it might be, getting you into the city quickly, huge market there. So I think these will be used for something like that as well. But again, it's just another step down the path. We're seeing more Mm. and more of this. I can hardly wait to get to somewhere like Dubai where I can actually try and get in one of these, cross my fingers, make sure my will's up to date, and then say, let's go and try out this taxi and see what happens. With six props, I reckon it it sounds like – it feels like the more props you've got – the safer it is. Why not? Yeah, yeah. I just uh, so so these things. Um, yeah, they're going to be well. The fear is is you're going to land your your air taxi on someone's roof yep. or in their back wall or something I, like I that. The fear but, is more that I might land at a high rate of knots yeah, <laughs> coming straight yeah, yeah. down. But you're right with six propellers on there. That's obviously part of the program is to give you some redundancy in there. Mm. And look with. Jet planes, I remember when Boeing had four jet engines, and everyone, well, we need four because you've got more redundancy built in, but a lot of the aircraft now, 737s, A320s, two engines seem to be the go, but we just don't see that many failures. And I think that's the same with mm. a propeller, an electric propeller, very few moving parts, very few places for it to fail, so you hope it's pretty safe. So you have six in there. Well, I mean, it's just about stability. Like, um, yeah, having these these propellers that are pointing in different directions just to make it more stable and therefore easier to fly. Well, a lot of them now are getting to the point, and I don't know if this one is, but a lot of them now actually twist the propeller or twist the actual wing so that when they're flying horizontally, it's using that wing to hold up the plane, so using aerodynamics to hold up the plane or the vertical takeoff and landing device. Because a helicopter or something that's only using vertical props is using a lot of its energy to stay up and a bit of its energy to go forward. Whereas if you've got wings to keep you up, you're using more of your energy to go forward. So there's a lot of that where they're twisting wings or twisting props at the moment. But yeah, even if you've got six props and or six propellers and some wings to hold you up, that sounds like it's got a bit of redundancy built in. It sounds like it's more stable, again, with six propellers just to lift you up there. So it sounds okay. And I'd have a go in one, put it that way. I'd be quite comfortable to go up one of these with a bunch of propellers and say, let's get this drone off the air and I'm happy to jump in it. (laughs) Maybe watch it go up first without me and then then I'll have a go afterwards. (laughs) And with that, we'll pull the plug on another episode, let all the air out of another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. Uh, my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. I'll go and get my body scan now to make sure we're back here again next week. Uh, and look, is it vindictive to go prank calling telemarketers? I wonder no. if you can get the number of one of those scammers. 
I just don't think I can wait around long enough for a call just so I can test out that AI trick. The best form of defence is attack, I reckon. In the meantime, I just want to send out a big thank you to all you listeners for tuning in once again. It's a pleasure to deliver Tech Talk to you each week and we hope you can join us again next time. I'm James Eddy, bidding you a super-duper week to come and we look forward to catching you in one week's time here at Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Until then, take care.